How are you? I'm well, thank you. Where is every, are you all in California? We're in Southern California, uh, just North of San Diego. Okay. Yeah. Cause I kind of looked at the church, I guess someone on my team got the time wrong. So I was like ready. I I came on at four 30, but there it was like, Oh, nothing has started. So I then like looked at where you are and was like, okay. There we go. <laughs> well, I'm glad that Sometimes time differences can be like just confusing. <laughs> where are you calling from? Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Two hours. Different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're so excited to talk with you. We've been reading your book over the last month and meeting periodically to talk about it. And so um, we have lots of questions for you and so excited that you're you're able to join us. Dr. Christina Cleveland is a social, social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She is the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journey toward liberation. An award-winning researcher and former professor at Duke University's Divinity School, Dr. Cleveland is an avid student of embodied wisdom. She is also the author of God is a Black Woman, which is why we are gathered here today. So welcome, Dr. Cleveland. We are so thrilled to talk with you. Thank you for introducing me and thank you for having me, everyone. And it's nice to see faces and hello to everyone who's not on, um, doesn't have their camera on. I'm an introvert, so I salute you. (laughs) We actually have a couple uh, Duke Divinity graduate students with us on the call. Oh, congratulations. Yay. And Claire was um, had signed up to take your class at Duke right before you left. And so when, she, when we were getting ready to talk, she's like, oh, I finally get my chance. So we're excited. Um, but let's just dive in. And, and again, if you have questions, just raise your hand. But just to get things started, we just um, we so enjoyed this book and we were just you know, it's such a gift to us. And we we're wondering what were what were you hoping that people we're going to get out of it when you were writing it? Like who is your audience and what was your hope that people would? Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm glad it's nice to hear that you all, and I'm right. I'm looking at faces that I, that I've categorized as white. Um, Oh, okay. No, no, there we go. We have a woman of color joining us. I see you. Hello. Um, but you know, um, Oh, sorry. Did I miss someone? Okay. Eleanor, Eleanor. Okay. See, thank you for, thank you for identifying yourself. Um, the, the book was written for black women. Um, and actually it was a collaboration. It was an editorial collaboration between Harper one, which is Harper's Harper Collins's spiritual division and, um, Amistad, which is Harper Collins's black division. So we actually had, um, a wonderful collaboration in that sense. And it was written for black women and, um, often white women don't like the book and have very strong thoughts and feelings about that. So, um, you know, whenever white women, um, are interested in reading about, um, spirituality from black women's perspective, I think that benefits white women. Um, but you know, I I think white women are often used to um, being the center of the story. And so I've gotten a lot from white women, like I I couldn't really find myself in your story. Yeah. Cause it's not about you. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, the the audience was black women. Um, and that was very intentional, um, editorially. Um, that said, I think that my book um, the goal was to help anyone find themselves in the divine. 
And so one of the things that's been really powerful is hearing like Black trans men telling me, oh my gosh, I loved your book. It's helping me see myself in God or hearing like Asian women or, you know, all sorts of people, Black men, you know, all sorts of people who aren't Black women who um, have said, wow, like your journey kind of gave me um, the imagination to go on my own journey. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of liberation theologies have done for me. I know that like at the very beginning of my sort of awakening, um, maybe 12 years ago, I started reading a lot of Palestinian, um, a, a lot of Palestinian the um, liberation theology. I, that was like what I read for like an hour before I went to bed every night. And just hearing, you know, Palestinian theologians saying things like Samson was the first suicide bomber. And here's how we can see um, the divine in suicide bombers. Here's how we can see human, like, um, humanity and suicide bombers, that really gave me license to say, oh, so I can, I can interpret things differently than the way that I've been taught. And so, yeah. I have so many questions just based on what you, yeah. remember, um, I want to know some of those recommendations for the Palestinian theologian. Mm -hmm. One of, I, I think our, our group has been meeting. So this group came about um, after the murder of George Floyd, we really dove deep into social justice. We read a lot of um, black theologians. We actually, you reference um, nice white ladies, Jesse Daniels. We just read her book and talked with her a couple of weeks ago. So we're really on the path to create an expansive um, understanding of God and to not center the white voice and to really continue to grow our idea of God. So um, we've done a little bit of, of foundational work. And so um I think maybe that that's maybe why we were at a place I've had people say I tried to pick up God as a black woman and I had to put it down and they're not you know um you have to be ready maybe is a way to say that but um one of my it's questions also a heavy book and so a lot of black women have said you know I've been reading it for the last year because I resonate with so much of your story and that's painful too. You know, it's like, I feel seen and also it's painful. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's one of those, but it's not for everyone and it's not for everyone right now. Um, so yeah. Um, you, 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 you mentioned liberation theology and, um, just for clarification for some folks is you talk about liberation theology, womenist theology, feminist theology. Can you just talk a little bit about those differences kind of like in a little a snapshot, just so we we're, we're, there's some clarification around those things. Yeah, I can certainly talk about the way I think of it. I mean, I'm guessing there might be different perspectives, but um, I would say that both uh, womanist and feminist theologies technically fall under the umbrella of liberation theology, although liberation theology does have a very specific um, history and it, it's very it's very much rooted in like black and Latinx um, theological streams. Um, but I think that a lot of feminist theology, which I would say was like probably technically the precursor to um, was before womanist. Um, I'd say a lot of feminist theology um, was inspired by liberation theology. And again, this idea that um, a person's, like your embodied perspective on the world matters when interpreting not just scripture, but also who God is. And also um, this, this general idea that God is active in the world and 
and working for justice and whatever, whatever that looks like, whether it's gender justice, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's racial. Um, and so, you know, I would say, um, if you're, if you're in my newsletter, uh, my, for June, on Juneteenth, um, I, I wrote about how I spent an evening with Dr. Gay Wilmore, who's like the father of Black liberation theology. And so, I mean, I think someone like him would say theology is any, like liberation theology is anything that is affirming the dignity and sanctity of oppressed peoples um, and affirming their connection to the divine. And the, and the importance of their lives in the in the in the in the like the the universe of the divine, <laughs> and then feminist theology. Um, I mean, it's technically supposed to be for women, but it's just so often for white women. Um, but it is it is you know I, I was inspired by a lot of early feminist theologians for sure, um, and then womanists. I would say are they're they're unique from feminists in that they're centering Black women's perspectives and they're particularly interested in what the divine is doing in and through Black women. Um, and I would say womanists are distinct from Black feminists, <laughs> which is a whole nother category in that womanists tend to be much more interested in religion, both informally and, and, and formally, whereas a lot of Black feminists um, are really interested in distinguishing themselves from, from general feminism, because that's sort of just white feminism, um, but they're not as interested in um, the project of the church. So womanists are often like, I want to, you know, figure out how to, how to make sense of this patriarchal theology. And most Black feminists are like, mm, burn it. <laughs> and so you do see like different different religious perspectives some coming from black feminists so like a Tamara Lomax who wrote um something Jezebel it's really good I quote her in my book I'm blanking the name Jezebel Unleashed I want to say Jezebel Unleashed something along those lines and she would she would say she's a black feminist huh what is it unhinged unhinged Jezebel unhinged. And she she would say she's a black feminist, not a womanist, because she's she's really interested in critiquing and then moving on from the church, even though her husband is a pastor vocationally, which is really funny. Um, I'm, I would love to be a fly on the wall at their dinner conversations. Um, and then womanists would be, you know, someone more like a Monica Coleman or like a Kelly Brown Douglas, who are very much still working in the church and um, trying to find like sort of feminist pathways through that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That, that's very helpful. Yeah. And I just want to pause if there were, because that was a, I know we had a couple discussions around that. Is there any question, follow-up questions about those distinctions? I just wanted to make sure. And so in your, where are you in your journey now? Have Are, are you consider yourself um, a womanist? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, no, I've actually sort of stepped away. Well, I mean, maybe, but like, I, <laughs> I've stepped away from even uh, using feminism or womanism as, as a way of thinking. I, I'm, I tend to think more in terms of matriarchy. Mm. It's that's early, it, that's ancient. Um, and to me, it's, um, it, it says more about how power should look or can look and how communities can be organized. Um, one of the things that's always bothered me about both feminism and womanism and black feminism is that, and even to a certain extent liberation theology, is that because these came out of the academy, many of the pioneers, and to a certain extent a lot of people now, are still very much trying to put everything in a way, say everything in a way that makes sense to the academy. Mm. 
And so you end up having like feminist and womanist writers whose books are like incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth Shessler Fiorenzo would be a great example of that. Like, because, and it's like, I don't, I can't even, re- I don't, I'm not even critiquing her. It's just that in the context that she was in, she had to write that way in order to be seen as legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something, um, there's something about patriarchy and talk, like that, that's, that says that communication is pa- patriarch in the patriarchal world, communication is used to dominate. And in the patriarchal world, communication is used to relate. In the patriarchal world, language is used to dominate versus in the matriarchal world, it's used to relate. And then also, if you just think about the way patriarchal societies and pathways are centered around production and dominance and hierarchy, whereas matriarchal pathways are centered around needs and and um, nurturing and identifying how we all come together around meeting our needs. So just as I've moved, as I've just thought through some of this, I just have been thinking, you know, I, 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 yeah, I, of course I'm a feminist. Like I, I want, like, I want all people to have the same equality regardless of gender. <laughs> and also I'm really wanting to move into spaces and create spaces and co-create spaces that are centered around need and not dominance. That's and I think so many of the black feminist and womanist and feminist spaces are still around, really organized around dominance and competition and production because that's, because they come out of academia and they're still very much tethered to academia. Right, there's so much just there in that space. I had never thought of, you're right, I think, I mean, I know I live in that kind of world where I have to produce, right? Just even feeling that in the church, Versus that matriarchal, um, it's it's a much more um, uh, I want to say action, but not action like production. But there there's like a holistic approach to what you just described. I I'd have to I have to sit with it. Are there are there ways to research that and kind of understand it at a deeper level? Um yeah, you know there's lots of work. So um, I'm wondering if I'm I'm surrounded by some of my books, but I'm not sure if it's here. There's a book called um, the uh, Societies of Peace. That's an edited volume that I think is edited by Heidi Gottner, something or other. I think I want to say she's Belgian or Dutch or something. So there, um, but she talks a lot about aim. Um, it's an edit, it's an edited volume, so it's a good introduction. And she talks about current and um, historical matriarchal societies and how they're organized. It's yeah, it's called Societies of Peace. It's like an or the cover is orange and green. Um, and so that's one place to start, but yeah. a lot of imagining really, you know, and I, and I think another thing I would say is in sometimes the mujeristas um, really, produce their work in a way that to me feels very matriarchal and like a re- like resisting patriarchy. And so even just their, their, um, their interest in low quotidiano, um, the, ev- like finding that the, the sacredness and the everyday things and really, really looking at like everyday women's lives as the lens so which you don't always see in feminist and black feminist and womanist writings um but i think the 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 mihiri says that the latin the latina feminists 
really center kind of like the grandma on the street, you know, and kind of how she's encountering the divine so that some of those can be, you know, so like some, some of those writers can be pretty fabulous and like incredible to read. Um, so. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me of in your book, when it, is this when it started you, you, after you leave Duke or maybe it's even while you're at Duke. Yeah. I, I wrote Duke. I wrote that book while, well, I, I went on my pilgrimage while I was still at Duke. Yeah. Um, but I knew at the end of my pilgrimage, there was like, I didn't write about this, but like there was, I was walking back from like the last black Madonna. And I, I had this like moment, like where I was just like, okay, so I could go home and write a book or I could go home and be transformed. Mm-hmm. Like this could be a cute trip that with lots of cute stories and like it probably even be good. Or I can like, a, I can really take seriously my belief that God is a black woman and let that let that transform everything and um so then that's when I was like okay yeah like if God's a black woman then I don't have to keep working on the plantation in order to stay alive in order to have what I need so that that that, so then that became like my next big thing like I'm gonna put this to the test (laughs) and and try to live it as opposed to just continuing what I believed which was that I have to take care of myself because nobody's looking out for me and nobody understands by nobody I mean like no divine being what was that process like for you letting it transform you oh every single day it was like fire you know (laughs) I mean it still kind of is I mean even on my team um we we often ask that question as we're taking risks or as we're making different offerings or we're trying to decide how much to charge or you know just all the things like well what is abundance saying and how, how do we move through this in abundance? Um, trusting that somehow, somewhere, we don't have to exploit ourselves. We don't have to work ourselves to death. We don't have to say yes to opportunities that with, with organizations that can't um, hold what we put down as Black women in order to, to survive, in order to have the lights on, in order to have medical insurance. And so, you know, asking that question, um, if we really believe that God is a black woman, how will this, how will that guide us? Um, and so, you know, it's, you, we, it, the, the result is that you spend a lot more time in spiritual practice than work so that then you can be ready to do the work. And that's, that's kind of how my, my life is. One of the ways my life has changed. I spend half my, half my time um, doing spiritual practices that connect me to abundance, a wide variety. And then the other half of my time is um, industrial work which I would answering emails, meeting with my team, writing, doing things like this. And so it's like 2020 and I do 40 a week, even when I'm writing and have deadlines. Yeah. What are some of those spiritual practices? Oh yeah. Uh, it's like everything. So there are three people that I talk to every morning um, for 15 minutes each that are just like life-giving um, spiritual connections. So, and we, they're like, it's intergenerational. It's also all that good stuff. Meditation, prayer, exercise, um, any of like my spiritual direction or therapy or, any, or anything that I'm doing, um, creative things. Like I do a lot of like embodied practice, um, going for a walk and having a two hour conversation with a life-giving friend sleeping. Um, yeah, it just, it varies every day, but yeah, usually my, my, my mornings are devoted because I'm a morning person. So I want to give my best time of the day to that. So I can be really present if I'm taking, you know, if I'm doing like, I'm always doing some sort of like spiritual class or something to grow. Um, 
And so I want to make sure I'm giving that my best time. And then in the afternoons, I usually schedule things. And I also write in the afternoons. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself falling back into that, um, that, that world? Mm, Yeah, not really. Um, but the part of the impetus for this was my like digestive system shut down too, right around my pilgrimage. And so it was kind of a wake up call that my life was indigestible. And so, um, I just, yeah. So I will say when I have like a big deadline around a book or a project, I have to be especially intentional about holding the margins, but it's amazing. I mean, it feels like a miracle because the, the work it's done Mm. is it's so interesting. Like it's like, I can sit down and write as much in four hours as if I had spent eight hours. Um, because I'm rested, I'm centered, I'm fearless. I can come, I can come to my laptop without fear, without insecurity or significantly reduced, (laughs) you know, plus a lot of the times I'm spending the mornings reading poetry or reading things that inspire me or doing a lot of body movement with it. So I'm like, so just the ideas are integrated with my body. And so it's just, yeah, it's interesting. And I learned this actually, this is, this is co-opted from the Ohlone people. When I was bedridden, um, when my my de- my digestive system shut down, I was bedridden for three months. And um, one of my friends, one of the people I talk to every day, actually, they're seventy. They just turned seventy three. Wait, how old am I? I'm forty two. Yeah, they're exactly thirty years older than me, almost. Um, so they just turned seventy three, and um, they they they're the ones who said, "Well, I read this book about the Ohlone people." Um, and they spent 19 hours a week on average on industrial tasks and spent the other rest of their quote work week end quote um, doing community gathering spiritual. So for example, like the men would historically, the men would hike, was sorry, hunt, and they would spend like four hours in the sweat lodge meditating and then go hunt for four hours because they knew it was interconnected. Mm-hmm. They were related to the elk and the deer and the whatever. Um, And so they had these built-in practices where they considered there was no separation between spiritual work, community connection, and industrial work. It was all integrated. And so I just said, okay, cool. 20 hours a week. Great. I'm going to do it like the Ohlone people. (laughs) That's so, whenever I first decided I wanted to be a pastor, I thought that that would be like naturally built in like oh when you're a pastor you just do that it's like you pray and you, and it just like has totally gotten away from me and it's it just remind it's reminding me like about discipline and boundaries and practice and all that stuff so yeah and the world's a better place i mean part of leading my team is really challenging cuz we're trying to do it in a matriarchal way where like everyone legitimately gets a say and it doesn't matter what your degree is or how old you are. And we're really check, doing a lot of body wisdom and um, and we're trying to treat everything like an experiment. And um, we're trying to be really kind to ourselves and to each other in the context of mistakes. And I'm an Enneagram one, if anybody knows the Enneagram. So I'm like, I don't believe in mistakes. Mistakes are of the devil, you know? Um, And then also I'm a Leo, sun, moon, and rising. So like giving up. So there's, so all of this spiritual work helps me to just show up as someone who 
can be soft and can be kind and um, can can have compassion for myself, which means I get to have compassion for others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and someone made a huge mistake on our team two weeks ago. And when they came to the meeting to talk to me about it, they just said, well, if there's one thing I know, it's like one of the best things I've heard in like a year. They're like, if there's one thing I know, it's that Christina will understand and will have compassion. And I was just like, that's like amazing. So it's worth it, you know, when, um, to do that work. Cause then I get to show up in the world in a way that, um, is consistent with who, with what I'm saying is, you know, to the best of my ability, imperfectly, of course, but you know, to the best of my ability. Question in the chat, is it necessary to humanize God as a man or woman? Oh, is it necessary? That's a good question. Um, it's been necessary for me. I can say that in part because it's God's already been humanized as a man. (laughs) And so, um, I think for me, it has been really healing and, um, liberating for me to understand God as a woman. Um, but I, I also think that it's been, you know, it's been powerful for me to, experience God in a river or to see God as a river too. But I think before I could move on to some of those other things, or even, I mean, honestly, now I I refer to God as they almost as often as she, but I could have never gone straight to they because then I wouldn't have dealt with like the heart of the patriarchal issue, which is that it's been male. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think hopefully that humanizing God just sets us up on a pathway to find ourselves in the divine so that we can stop trying to control everything and stop trying to be God. Um, and then hopefully we can, that's a pathway to seeing God in everything, even in our enemies, um, which a Palestinian taught me too <laughs> when I was in Haifa. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think the problem of like God being a white man is that it doesn't actually heal anyone, even white men. Cause like, wouldn't the world be amazing if white men actually believed they were sacred? Like that would literally be the end of everything that's wrong with the world. If white men actually believed that they were sacred and they wouldn't have to bully everybody, hold on to power. (laughs) And so, I mean, I think that's the problem with God as a white man is that it does, it's not, it's not a healing and liberative concept. It's not, I don't think the problem is that God's been humanized or even racialized. It's just that it's been aligned with power in a way so that it's no longer a healing and liberating concept. I'm going to jump in real quick and remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check out our podcast wherever you get your podcast. You can also visit our website, thecollectivetable.org to find out who we are and what we do. And keep up with us on social media at The Collective Table. I just, one of my questions was, well, before, and I think you kind of explained that. I was just trying to figure out when you said that you were off of the plantation, Mm. if that means what, that you're directing your life and your, the way you want to do it without having other people tell you how to do it? No, thanks for, thanks for letting me clarify. No, no, I think, uh, I think it's more of a mentality than a location, um, and I think um, I think that there that that there are people who could work in academic institutions, and I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that they are on the plantation. You know, it's just that for me, 
I was trying to, I, I was hired by Duke Divinity School to be the director of the Center for Reconciliation. Um, but reconciliation, I learned very quickly when I was, when I got there is not possible at Duke Divinity School because there are so many forces within the school systemically that are anti-Black and anti-reconciliation <laughs> that um, it was important for me to do that work outside of that context. And I realized that the only reason why I was staying there is because it was prestigious and it gave me a sense of academic platform that I thought I could that I thought I could not have access to without the plantation because I was afraid as an unmarried black woman who is like many unmarried black women I don't have any family money or family resources to rely on if actually it's the opposite they rely on me um, and so I thought, oh, I won't have health insurance, like I won't have income, like I have to stay here. And it just makes me think a lot about, um, you know, Harriet Tubman, um, who, oh gosh, I think about her almost every day. She was taught probably similarly to me that life is a plantation and this is the best it's going to be for you. So your goal is to be the most powerful Negro on the plantation. To, to work the system as best you can, but the system is always going to be against you. Um, and somehow she woke up one day and was just like, I'm too sacred for this. I don't know how she got there. I'm so, I wish I knew. <laughs> um, but she, then she had to imagine, because all she knew was life on the plantation, the language of the plantation, the skills she had on the plantation, the geography of the plantation. Like, how is it even possible to survive in a, in a way where I'm not being exploited and I'm not being worked to death. And my, um, my, my livelihood is not dependent on me staying in a space that is um, literally killing me. I think what's interesting is as soon as you might leave a plantation space, like the one that I was in at, at Duke Div, um, then you realize there are like 25 more plantations just waiting for just lure trying to lure you in. <laughs> and now I, I now I understand why Harriet Tubman would threaten to shoot people if they turned back. Because as soon as you step off, you're like, oh, now what? And then all of the fears come up. And then what's amazing is I when I when I left Duke Divinity School, I wrote an open letter, I guess. I don't know. And um, I sent it to one of my um, former college professors, who's now a dean, um, who's and, and is also black. And he's at Dartmouth. He was at Dartmouth when I was a first year student and he's still there. And but now he's, you know, has more power. And I, I read, he read it and he was, and cause I was just like, oh, I'm pretty sure like no one in academia will ever hire me again. And he's, he read it and he's like, oh no, you're still totally hireable. I was like, what? He was like two things. One, you didn't name any names. That's huge. He's all two, you'd be surprised at how powerful tokenism is. And sure enough, like a month later, I got a job offer from Berkeley just out of the blue, you know what I mean? And so it's like, there's always gonna be something else to lure you in. And then if it's not that, it's, oh, come speak at our conference where it's totally tokenism and exploitation, but we're gonna pay you well, you know? So it's not, it's, so I think you can be off the quote plantation institutionally and still be making choices that are in line, that are based on resource scarcity and not based on abundance. And so that, and actually I did that this year. I, I, um, I, I agreed to collaborate with an organization. This time of year is always a little scary for me because um, I haven't quite 
lined up how I'm going to make money the next year. <laughs> and so I, and now I'm noticing, okay, it's okay. Like this, you're going to, it's okay to be afraid this time of year. Cause you're right. It's, it's a big question mark. Um, but this time last year, um, an organization that could not hold what I put down reached out to me and said, please collaborate with us. And so I, I was out of fear. I said, okay, yes, I will. Um, and then this spring when we actually, so then we worked for months in the spring when we actually did the collaboration, it was like horrible in every way. Um, so it's possible to be off the quote plantation and still be like on the plantation. <laughs> and, and like, so that's a great, so that's an example of, of where you, you found yourself back up, like you, you were off the plantation, but you went back on for that moment. And how, what? How do you, and is this where the spiritual practice comes in to determine this is, this is tokenism. This is not this, like how, how, and, and do you find yourself like, okay, now I'm in this. Do I get out of it? Yeah, I had, I had so many, like, and that's why I'm so glad I, there's several wise folks that I talk to regularly. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a huge discernment question, you know, at the point that it became really clear. Well, I mean, on a level, I kind of knew in my body um, that I was making a choice out of fear. Um, but it became about three months and it became really clear based on a, um, a meeting that we had um, that it wasn't going to be, that it, that it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to work. Um, so then I did have to decide, do I stay in it or not? Um, and so, um, which was, you know, could have gone either way at that point. You were saying that white men don't see themselves as sacred. So could you tell me who white God is? Mm. Well, I mean, that's the problem. Like white God. Okay. Well, I mean, because I read the book and I kept thinking, they're white men who are think they're in control, but you said they don't see themselves as sacred. Well, I think if you are actually, if so, I think if you actually know your power, you don't have to control others. Okay. And so um, at least that's kind of been my experience. Like my need to control has come out of fear. Hmm. Um, fear that I'm not going to get what I need. I'm going to lose something that I have, or I'm, um, or I'm afraid of what people think. <laughs> <laughs> one of those, right? That's usually when I'm trying to control myself, trying to control others. Um, and so I think, I think, I think if you, if you don't, if you don't know how, if you don't know your power, um, and I don't mean power in terms of social power, but just sort of innate power, I think we, we try to control and dominate others. I also think that if we don't actually um, see ourselves as sacred, and, and held, um, then it's really hard for us to move through the world and navigate the fears that just come up as being a human being. And so the, the, the way that white God, white male God was constructed was really um, to be used as a tool of oppression, like, like anything else in, in white patriarchy, right? I mean, he, white male God was created to justify um, the subjugation and enslavement of black and brown people. So this whole entity, demon, whatever you want to call it, um, wasn't even created as a way to honor the sacredness of people. It was created to justify the desecration of people. Um, and so when I think of white God or white male God, that's what I think of um, this, this political tool. 
And so it's not healing to anybody, including white men. And that's the problem. I mean, and I, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, like white male gods, tiny, terrifying circle of um, acceptability. Like nobody actually, no, no one actually gets the spot in it because everyone's constantly striving. No one's ever actually arrived. And so then therefore no one's safe. And if no one's safe, then we're just acting out of fear all the time. Yep. And that's why people say like, you know, there's like 6,000 nerve endings in the clitoris, but no, but it's still not as sensitive as a white man on the internet. You know, it's like, well, yeah, this is someone who's out there in the world, like afraid yeah. and insecure yeah. and doesn't believe that the divine has their back and that they can move through the world without controlling and hoarding and holding on to power and without, you know, that they, they don't believe that. And that's something I've kind of had to try to train myself. Like, hey, Christina, if God's a black woman, you can believe that you can take, you can take risks. You can be generous with resources, with time, with power. Um, you can do things outside of the box if that's life-giving to you. And if your embodied wisdom is leading you in that way, and it's going to be okay, you'll be protected. You'll be safe. Do you think that there are any benefits to white male God? Um, as constructed? <laughs> I mean, sure-ish. So, I mean, I think, I think there are benefits to people building community. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, individualism is so rampant, especially in the United States that um, I think, I mean, I'm guessing there are limits to this, but I mean, there are a lot of really beautiful churches that essentially believe in white male God and they're full of white folks and they all come together. And when someone has a baby, they set up a meal train and when someone in their community, you know, is homeless, people open up the doors to them. Um, you know, I think that's that's beautiful, and that's a that's like a a glimpse of what life can be like. I think the fact that it's centered around white male God really limits um, who's in and who's out, and sort of sets up some some exclusivity and some like. Um, yeah, I just uh, boundaries that are think I think are more hurtful than helpful, and I think it limits. If someone recently just said, "Whenever you see a line, God's on the other side," <laughs> you know, um, and I think it's really hard for them to imagine that. But I don't. I also don't want to downplay like people loving each other as best they can, even if it's loving people like themselves, because we just it's, it's a tough life out here. <laughs> and now that I'm less. I think I'm just less interested in forcing everyone to do things differently because I feel more safe in the world because of my theological beliefs. I mean, I think it's helpful and healing for them to expand and to um, ch really challenge like their internal white supremacy and all that good stuff. And also, yeah, I'm also grateful for the ways that they're able to build community in those limited ways, it, you know, even in, even with the limitations. Yeah, as you were talking, I was also thinking about white male God, the systems um, in which we do community or the systems in which we practice faith are are in the in within that. And 
I think a lot of people are thinking like, okay, what comes after whatever Christianity looks like now? Like, what is it going to look like? Or what is the church? But we've been so limited in this white male godness of thinking, like even just the matriarchy, like to like shift thinking in that way. And like, what could it look like if it was based on that, that as your foundation, as opposed to patriarchy. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, not just yeah, white male like, I mean, there are some like very unique and distinct and in potentially beautiful um, aspects of American society that we like can directly link to the religious background and the fact that religion plays such a huge role in our society. So for example, I spend so much time in France now, I've started to like make friends with people. And um, one of the people that I met is like complete, I mean, like a typical French person in her forties, like atheist, maybe a humanist, like Christianity is stupid, like all those sorts of things. And um, uh, she and her partner had a baby. And so the last time I went to visit them, I brought like a little onesie. It's, it was so cute. It was like a peapod onesie. Oh my gosh. Um, and so I, I brought it to her and I said, hey, here you go. Congratulations. She's like, what's this? And I was, and I, she opened it. She's like, what's this for? And I was like, it's for your baby. It's like a baby gift. And she's like, why? And I'm like, well, in the US, like we give a baby gift <laughs> when someone has a baby. <laughs> And she was so shocked and she was just like, you know what, you know, you know, my beliefs on religion and everything. And I was like, yeah, she's like, but at the same time, I like how Americans kind of take care of each other. And she's like, I think that's because of the religious communities. And she said, me and my husband just moved to this town and it's so hard to meet people because everyone's just in their own worlds. And she's like, no one's given us anything, even though lots of people know that we're, our, all of our neighbors know we're having a baby. All of our colleagues know we're having a baby and like, no one's given us anything. You're the first, that's why she was like, I was shocked that you get, and I was just like, yeah, that's like what you do in America, <laughs> you know? But those sorts of, um, those, those, the, the, it's really because it's a, it's a religious society, you know? Um, and it's organized around. So yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons. Mm-hmm. I used to, I used to want to throw everything out, baby, the baby out with the bathwater until I realized that throwing the baby out with the bathwater is like an inherently white patriarchal thing to do. <laughs> that was the exact term I was going to use. And I keep, I keep thinking, how do you save the baby and get rid of the water? You know? Yeah. Or how, well, yeah. Thing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, matriarchy, um, people of indigenous people of color communities, my ancestors, they were all about reclamation. You know, like you let go of what absolutely has to die because that's part of the life process. And then you, you heal everything else. You re reimagine, you start again. Um, it's kind of like the Nayira Wahid um, poem that, you know, she says, you know, I don't, I don't lose something along the lines of, I don't, I don't lose any sleep when the world ends because the world is ended for me many times before and begun again the next morning. And that's, that's totally how all my black female friends, especially my black friends here in my neighborhood in North Minneapolis, which is a low, a low income black neighborhood in Minneapolis after Trump got elected and like white people were like crying and like white women were like, I can't believe like politics is not on my side. Like for the first time now we know Supreme Court, a bunch of other things, you know, but that was like a wake up call for a lot of white women. And all my neighbors here in North Minneapolis were just like, uh, have we ever not had a bogus president who was anti-black? Like, <laughs> like we'll keep on going. Like, this is what we do. Like, even Obama, because the pre- the office of the presidency of the United States is anti-Black. Like, it kind of doesn't matter who's in it, you know? <laughs> like So they were just like, I mean, yeah, obviously it does, but they were just like, 
the world has be, has that, you know, the world's ended a bajillion times for us and it always begins again the next day. Like we keep yeah. moving, we reclaim, we reimagine, we, we work together like that. And there's a matter of factness to that. Um, that's just like very different than what you see in a lot of white patriarchal spaces. So <laughs> it is what you're saying. Like there's just so much going off in my mind right now. And I'm realizing <laughs> how much I live in, you know, I know that I have this white privilege and I live in this white patriarchal world, but just the, like, you're right. Like I, I, sometimes I'm like, how do you, how do you create space in this capitalistic patriarchal world? I don't know if I can do it. And you're saying, yeah, that's because you white lady are just waking up. I I've been doing this for a long, like, this is how it is. Yeah. And I, and I, and I get that. And I learned, and I, I have those same realizations too, when I'm spending time with folks who don't have the class privilege that I have, um, or black trans folks, you know, where it's like, oh, like, yeah, and so you start to realize there's so many limitations yeah. that privilege give off that privilege come, that come with come with privilege, you know. Um, I do think about people who don't have those options who have to work eight to five every day just to put food on the table to or like or more than that or two eight to fives, yeah, right. two yeah. eight to fives just to have food on the table, pay the rent and it's, you know, just scraping by, you know, it's like they're, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in Nablus, I'm um, living amongst some, um, Palestinian, um, uh, activists. Someone said despair is a luxury of the bourgeoisie. And I have not forgotten that. <laughs> Very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, we don't, that's not a thing. Yeah. Like we don't, we come together, we lament, which is different than despair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we lament and that's an embodied practice where we come together and we affirm our pain and we, and then we also, the lament and hope are connected. They're two sides of the same coin. And so, and so we, we connect the hope. And we keep going. And I was just like, yeah, like that's, I'll never forget this conversation. <laughs> yeah. In, in your book, you talk so much about uh, Madonna's black, specifically black Madonna's. And I'm wondering how, if you could speak a little bit more to what do Madonna's mean to you and how did like, how does it connect to God for you? Is it mm -hmm. deity? Is it something else? What? How would you describe Yeah, it? that's such a good question. Um, so I think of the Black Madonna as a representation of the divine. Um, historically, she is a Christianized version of the old, old dark goddesses, and specifically the ones in France that um, I spend a lot of time with um, have a connection to Isis and Chabelle and um, Black black uh black artemis of ephesus so that whole region of france um the pre-roman people who we would call pagans worshipped those dark goddesses who go back to the beginning um based some of the earliest goddesses um so you know i would say um i you know i i think she's a representation of the divine i think that um that she's a, a modern day representation of the of the old goddess. Some people say she's Mary, like the like like actual Mary, and that's like you know interesting. Um, 
So, so a lot of like Catholic mystics would say that she's Mary, um, the mother of God, um, who then other people would just say who was just a, a Christianized version of the old goddess. <laughs> just like, I mean, it's when you start to really go down these rabbit holes, you see that like, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into this, but you start to see that like, you know, Jesus and um, I'm blanking on the God, the Greek God right now, like almost exactly the same um, in the, in the mythology. Oh, I, I, it's, I forget. It's one of the gods. And so then it's like, of course he had to have a virgin birth because the gods are always born of a virgin birth and da, 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 da. Of course he had to have a consort who was either a mother or a wife because the gods always do. And, you know, kind of this, like, so you start, so then, so folks who really um, are proponents of that, um, would say that um that Mary Mary was you know the the dark goddess showing up and then she she did move to Ephesus after Jesus's death and resurrection and so then a lot of people say that um that she sort of became black black Artemis of Ephesus or black Artemis of Ephesus kind of took on the characteristics of Mary and well, I'll make a comment that I found it interesting that I really appreciated the inclusion of the the pictures of the statues mm. in, in the book. It really gave me a good oh. idea. It was kind of personification, uh, physical personification of what you were talking about. And I contrast that to the concept of the white male God, which I couldn't get my a physical picture of in my mind i i know what you're talking about in terms of the church and culturally but in comparison to um the black madonna which gave me kind of a some clarity about you know personification i i just want to bring up the contrast to mm. me that kind of struck me thank you i i took those pictures on my like um iPhone four or something. I always have like a super old iPhone cause I don't care. <laughs> um, but I just remember right around that time going and doing some um, work in, um, in, in Southern India and the kids in the orphanage making fun of my iPhone. Cause they get not, they get newer ones because Americans send them to them. When <laughs> so they were like, they're like, Whoa, your iPhone is like really old. I'm like the orphans in India are telling me my iPhone is old. <laughs> like, so I took all those pictures with, um, with that iPhone and I just for me. And then, um, thankfully when my editor read the book, she was like, I want to see pictures. So then we just put my pictures in. Um, and so that worked out really well because we didn't negotiate that on the front end and it's actually really expensive to add it an insert like that but they were happy to do it so yeah. do you have any thoughts about the origin of black madonna and are there they exist in some of these european countries where i kind of thought it was unexpected that you would find them in these white european countries. right yeah and they don't they don't mean they, they they're not understood as black in, in those, in the way that we understand race in the United States. But yeah, the, the majority of black men, I mean, there are about 450 black Madonnas around the world that are like official. Um, there are many more, but the official ones are like, um, they've, they've, they have like Catholic church, um, 
um, the Catholic Church has come and said, okay, the miracles that are associated with this are legitimate. <laughs> and then also they're connected to the earth. And um, they are, they're like a pill, they're, they have, they are currently or have been pilgrimage um, sites. And so those are kind of the characteristics of what makes something a black Madonna versus a black virgin, which a lot of churches in France have a black virgin. Um, but yeah, the majority of them are in, in France, Spain, and Italy, well over half, probably two thirds in the world. Although they are, they do exist in Africa. Um, they do exist in the Caribbean. They exist in Latin America. And, and of course in, in the U S too, but and in Asia, actually the Philippines, Japan, there are several black Madonnas. Um, but um, you know, I think there's there's few reasons. One, the, those parts of the world are like have been continuously inhabited for so long. They're also very close to Turkey and to the ancient world. That that was kind of the center of the ancient world, um, and so a lot of the black goddesses um, of old um, were, you know, had reach into that part of France and and in Italy, southern Italy, southern France, southern southern Spain. Those, um, those regions were also, especially France and Spain, were occupied by the Moors for about 800 years. So some of them come from um, just the fact that the people who were making them were, were Black. Um, many of them came, um, were, were uh, pillaged during the Crusades. And so they were created in the Holy Land um, and people understood Mary to be Black um, generally during that time. And so the the madonnas were black and they were brought back from the um and then some of them especially in the region where i did a lot of my walking um they were made of the black lava rock that whole region is surrounded by 47 volcanic mountains and so the all, the, the 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 earth and all the rocks are super black there because they're all lava rock and so um a bunch of those black madonnas were um made from that lava rock. So they're they're black because they were made from black materials. Um, and then lastly, Luke is known for like, I mean, according to the lore, Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke, which I mean, I, it's so hard to, who knows if this is true or not, but supposedly many of the famous black Madonnas he carved himself or painted himself, um, which is just kind of interesting because Luke is like the most problematic of all the four gospel writers. So it's just interesting, but um, um, yeah, and then his his version of Acts is sketchy. Um, so the, yeah, there's a lot going on. But um, Luke and Mark were responsible for a lot of, or supposedly a, a responsible for a lot of the movement of the Black Madonnas throughout the ancient world. And Mark was Libyan, so it may, Mark was Black. So I think a lot of his attachment to the Black Madonna was probably because he was Black himself. So yeah. Jennifer? What, what baby is the Black Madonna carrying, holding? Um, it, the, the understanding is the Christ child. Yeah. 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 Um, I just am curious, you said Luke is the most problematic. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, so like Luke's, so there's all this like contested, um, research on like who Paul was and what Paul actually wrote that, that we say Paul wrote. Um, and so a lot of what we probably say Paul wrote, Paul probably didn't write because there's like multiple versions of Paul. <laughs> and Luke, um, Luke's version of Paul is the most like 
political, the most, not just political, the most um, privileged. Like Paul, Paul was an oppressed Jew, yet technically he had Roman citizenship. But like there are certain times when Paul Paul's clearly speaking from the perspective of an oppressed person under Roman Empire. Um, and then there's times when Paul seems to be out there like kind of like moving through spaces like he owns the joint. And Luke is usually the one who's presenting that side of Paul, which is just really interesting. And so like some scholars have just pointed that out that. Um, the version of Paul that we get that that really supports this idea that he was kind of like a my way or the highway authoritarian leader who um, was really interested in um, um, like Christianity gaining power, you know, that's those come from Luke's stories of Paul. Um, so, yeah, there's just I always liked Mark the best just because he's so succinct and to the point. And so I was like, so when I when I learned he was Libyan, which I actually learned through my Black Madonna research, I was like, of course, Mark's not playing. Yeah. <laughs> we want to just say thank you for your work and the work that you're continuing to put out in the world. How can we follow you or keep up with all your new your, your new work, your new books, whatever else is coming. How can we follow thank you? Thank you. Thank you. Well, my, in terms of the black Madonna work, my next big thing is I'm returning to France this fall to write a book um, on the black Madonna. Cause my book's kind of about me too. This one will be about her. Um, and it's called the black Madonna for racial liberation. And it's a, um, a, an ancient spirituality for today's activists. So um, any prayers, good thoughts you can send my way. That would be awesome. Um, also a great way to support that work is through Patreon. So if you, I have a Patreon page. So if you are interested in supporting me sustainably, that would be an amazing way to do it. I also go to my website, um, because we are, um, I have like a really wonderful, um, like God is a black woman monthly newsletter that we send out. That's kind of like a spiritual spa day. Um, it's very luxurious and calming, I think. And then um, if you are a black woman or you know black women, I'm start, I just linked up with Omnoir and we're gonna be launching our first Black Madonna pilgrimage for black women next May in Paris. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, and yeah, so those are the kind of the Black Madonna things. And then also um, I'm doing a bunch of work around shame and race. And so, and that's all like free stuff too. So um, if you just go to my website, you can sign up to get on my email list. And we're going to be doing like a big masterclass series later this summer on like, like healing from your own shame around whatever your racial identity is. So there's always something going on. Sounds like it. Lots of exciting stuff. Well, yeah. we thank you for your book. We thank you for your time and, and such a um, beautiful conversation. So we thank will you for being here. cross paths sometime in the future. Yeah.